Um, so remember we were talking about Perry Mason. I just wanted to, uh, uh, who, um, the, that was the TV show. There actually turned out to be 270 episodes of Perry Mason, uh, which is a whole lot of episodes. And I told you I thought Earl Stanley Gardner, who wrote the Perry Mason episodes, was um, a syndicate. Um, but he wasn't. He was, at the time that he died in 1980, the um, most um, best-selling American author ever. And um, he wrote, like, over 80 Perry Mason novels in addition to a whole bunch of other um, novels, um, mainly having to do with crime and detective novels and so on. And he, set, he was a lawyer who then got bored being a lawyer and wrote in his spare time, and he set himself the task of writing 1.2 million words a year. Um, so if you think about what that means, it means 100,000 words a month. And if you think of what 100,000 words a month means, that means a kind of mid, mid, mid to longer than mid, above average, above mid-length novel. So 100,000 words a month means over 3,000 words a day. So when you have to write 3,000 words for a paper, for, a, for an English course to fulfill the requirement, he would do that like every day, seven days a week if he was going to write, and more if he was writing 100,000 words a month. Um, so um, that was writing, um, and it's how writing and money go together. And it's literally how writing and money go together, because I, what was cool about it was I read an interview with him um, I think this is on Wikipedia, too. Um, but I read an interview with him, and in the interview, um, someone says to him, uh, why are you so cheesy? Why does the bad guy always die on the last shot? Why is it always... Um, why does it always take six shots for, for the gunfight to be over? Why do they all shoot their um, all their bullets? And um, his answer was that he got paid three cents a word, and bang was a word. So if there were, if someone gets killed on the first shot, or if the gunfight is over on the first shot, that's five bangs that he doesn't write. And those five bangs, that's 15 cents. And he says, why should he get the hero out of trouble um, five shots earlier if it's going to cost him 15 cents in writing? Um, so, he, so anyhow, that means he writes by the word, um, gets paid by the word, and it seemed like the perfect e exemplification of some of the things that we're talking about in this class. Um, imagining money, well, if you imagine words, if you write them down, if you're writing fiction, but you're paid by the word, then the fiction itself is turning into money, and you can count how much. So um, here the words are doing some of the functions of money, right? They are not a medium of exchange, because it's not like in real life words are media, media of exchange, but in fiction, um, he's just writing them down. But they are certainly bookkeeping devices, um, and they are certainly storages of value uh, when he's writing those words down. So um, the relation of fictional words to money, if you get paid by the word, uh, that's a really interesting relationship. Okay, I thought, I just want to say since, oh, I have a question for you. How many of you, I said that we're already a, like a day behind, believe it or not. I know it's hard to believe. Um, and today was, I assigned the Merchant of Venice and said we'd talk about it and we will. Um, how many of you have started timing? Uh, how far into it did you get? Abigail? Uh, no, Abigail. Prue, did you raise your hand? Yeah. Oh, okay, how far into it? Halfway? All right, my question is, uh, those of you who've started it, would you be pissed off if we just skipped it? No. It's a... <laughs> oh, looks like you really want to do it. Okay, let's skip it. Um, you, can, you can do it. You can write on it. It's a, it's a really interesting play. Uh, what you know from uh, reading Buchan on it, uh, he doesn't say much about it, but he does talk about it a little bit, is that I'll, I'll give you a quick rundown of the plot, which is that Timon is the richest man in Athens. He's, this is, he's a real person. He's historical. 
Shakespeare's Roman and Greek plays, his plays of classical antiquity, are all except for Titus Andronicus historical. Titus Andronicus was just a made-up name. But all the others are historical, and they come from Shakespeare's reading of biographies of people whose lives were miserable enough that biographies were written of them. And Timon was very, very rich, known as a misanthrope because of what happened to him, which is because he was rich, he had many, 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 many friends. And those many, 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 many friends were people that he treated with extreme generosity, because, and that's why they were his friends, but he didn't know that that was why they were his friends. So those of you who've gotten halfway through, you have a sense of all this, that people were always coming to him, and they were always being um, all buddy-buddy all to him, and it looked like they didn't want money, so he would give them gifts. And if you are reading or finish the mouse, which you were supposed to have done, you will have a sense of the gift-giving qualities that Shakespeare is putting in this character of Timon. Timon's steward is aware that he's running out of money, that he's being spendthrift, that he thinks the money will last forever, but the money won't last forever. And when Timon finally goes bankrupt, suddenly it turns out he has no friends. And all the people who he's helped in their hours of need, and there are many, many, many of them, find themselves unable to help him back in his hour of need. Not actually unable, but simply unwilling. So what happens in Timon is that Timon bankrupts himself through his generosity and then when he's bankrupt and needs help, he doesn't get help. So he gives gifts, but doesn't get gifts back, which is one of the things that Marcel Mose is talking about. And then he goes off to hate Athens and hate the world and even hate his one true friend, kind of true friend, kind of friend, definitely true, Alcibiades. And he finds gold, and suddenly he's rich again. But he doesn't care. So what's happened to him is that the gold has now stopped being for him a medium of exchange, and it stops being for him, although it is for us, watching the play, a store of value. And it becomes for him something that he has contempt for because he has contempt for society contempt for others, contempt therefore for interaction with others, except by way of revenge. So when people find out that he's found gold, suddenly they remember how much they like him. And they go visit him, and they, they want to be friends with him again, and he pretends that he is really glad to see them, and that it was all a misunderstanding, and he's glad to see that they're back in in a situation where they have time to be friends with him, and then he serves them a meal, and the meal he serves them is rocks. And then they realize that he's way pissed off. And what one of his famous lines is a kind of contempt for all others, where his idea of being self-sufficient, that he doesn't need other people, is an idea that all that matters is the mind and not the body. And the mattering of the mind, in a sense, means that the things that gold gets you, which are things that make life more pleasant, but you don't need life to be pleasant because that's only catering to your body and you shouldn't identify yourself with your body, are also the things that make life social, but you don't need to be social because that's just interacting with other people who are only greedy and only catering to their bodies. So in a sense, Timon, it's a play about misanthropy. If you've read Silas Marner, which I hope you haven't had to do because it's such a terrible thing to do to a person. Has anyone read it? Was it terrible? It's really boring. It is so boring. It was, I, we were assigned it in, in our school. We, you did it in school? Do you yeah. remember what grade? Um, I think 10th grade. 10th grade. 
I think we were assigned it in like eighth grade or something, and it was unreadably bad. And up until then, I really liked literature, and then here was this great novel, Silas Marner, and it was just unreadably bad. It's by George Eliot, who is a great, great novelist, but it's a very short novel by George Eliot, which is why it was assigned. And so I just couldn't read it and didn't and felt guilty about it and decided that I didn't have a future in literature at all and that reading was not what I should be doing and that I didn't get what great literature was at all. And then to some extent I got over that, so I was an English major and then went to grad school and then got a job and taught here. And then my graduate school roommate wrote a book on George Eliot and he had a last chapter on Silas Marner, which he wanted me to read. And I thought, well, here I am, a tenured faculty member. I think maybe I should give it another chance. I was probably missing what was so good about it when I was in eighth grade. So I actually read it every single page. And it was like the longest, most horrible thing I've ever read, even though it was short. Um, it's about 120 pages long, which is why they assign it in eighth grade and, or tenth grade. And it was as bad as I remembered. So my condolences, Ian. I, I, I know that must have been really rough, sadly rough. The only reason to read it is The Onion has a good and funny article about it, and I think The Onion article is actually, you know how The Onion sometimes talks about stuff that happens at universities, which they make up? I think the, I'm pretty sure The Onion article on Silas Marner, the person who's made a great discovery about Silas Marner, is a graduate student at Brandeis. So, and the discovery they make that this that this woman makes is basically what they teach you in eighth or tenth grade, which is there's a sweet and innocent living girl, a little girl who's Silas softens to. He's not like Timon. He he has been a miser and a misanthrope until the very end. But then this girl needs his help, and her hair is in golden ringlets. And this person discovered in the Onion has a banner headline. Are you looking it up? Are you? Oh, okay. Uh, the Onion has a banner headline that uh, the the that there's an amazing symbolism in that her hair is gold, just like the gold that the miser Silas is hoarding. So Silas Marner, which you haven't read, but if you had, you would then get a sense of Timon. But now maybe you get a sense of Timon from Silas Marner. Timon is a misanthrope, which means he has no use for money, and that is an interesting fact that to be a miser means you do have a use for money, which is to have it as a store of value that you don't want to touch. So you're not using it as a medium of exchange, and therefore, in some sense, you're not using it as an accounting unit because you're not, except to the extent that you're, you're counting how much money you have, the way Mammon does in the cave of Mammon in Spencer. That is a use for money, but it's not, the, it's not all the uses of money. And in particular, it's not being used as a medium of exchange. For Timon, it is of no use at all. It's not even a store of value that he can point to. For us, watching the play or reading the play, it is a store of value. And what it indicates is precisely what Timon does not set a value upon. And it can only mean that because we do set a value upon it. So Timon doesn't value the gold. And we do, and therefore can recognize what it means for Timon not to, for Timon to be contemptuous and indifferent to it. It's not the same thing as in Buchan's account and quotations of the conquest of Mexico uh, and of Peru of the conquistadores setting value on precious metals that the indigenous Americans don't value. It's not the same thing because for them, it's not that they have contempt for gold and silver. It's that gold and silver are simply beautiful. 
and therefore they have pure use value, the use value of being beautiful, but um, they're not interested in gold and silver as a medium of exchange as the Europeans are. So there's a clash of values, but there's still value there, not for Timon. For Timon, he has complete contempt for this. Okay, just to talk a, briefly about at the pawn shop, and then we'll turn to Merchant of Venice. In at the pawn shop, which we've been kind of kind of dipping into and dipping out of, I think what's spooky about that story? Did you guys find the story spooky at all? Why? Well, let me ask you because I I'm not quite sure that it's easy to figure out all the motivations in the story, and yet the story is suggesting that you can. It's not one of those stories in which people do stuff and you don't know why they're doing it, except you don't know why they're doing it. That is, here, just to plot summarize again, there, here is a guy who wants to borrow money. Where's his wife? Outside, Outside in the snow. And he's talking to the son of the pawnbroker, but he doesn't ask that the the son for the money. What does he ask him? Do you remember? That's it. The first puzzle is, and maybe it's not that hard a puzzle to to solve. And don't get the story out because because we really got to get to the merchant of Venice. Get it out if you want. But the first puzzle is, why is he asking? the question that he asks, which is not, will you lend me money? It's something else. Anyone remember? He asks, do you know someone who will lend me money? And they get into a conversation about pawning and about lending money on the basis of security that you would pawn and one of the interesting things that the son says is that it's not only the object that you're pawning that we need, we need to know that you, we need to investigate what you have at home. But he's getting advice about how to borrow money from the money lender, but he's not asking that money lender for the money. So why do you think that is? Do you, get, do you guys remember this? Were you puzzled by it? Yeah, okay. The coffee of blood. Well, I d I don't think he's trying to be a money lender. Yeah. I guess it's like weird. It seems odd that he wouldn't ask the money lender for money, but it almost seemed like or the, what I was getting is that it was an embarrassment for mm -hmm. him to like go to the pawn shop and have to do this. And so he was kind of putting off the actual asking of like, will you lend me money? by discussing something that, like, the moneylender obviously knows a lot about. Right? Mm -hmm. Or in this case, the son. Yeah. And it may well be that, that what he's doing is simply doing the kind of indirection that people do when they're engaged in a somewhat delicate negotiation. The Jewish version of this at a dance is a guy, a, a guy wants to ask a woman to dance and says, you dancing? And you know what the standard answer is? Are you? Yeah, it's you asking. And then the first guy says, I'm asking. And then she says, I'm dancing. So it's not, will you dance with me, which, which opens you to an out-and-out -out rejection. It's a hint that you would be willing to ask that question if the person would give you some encouragement to ask that question. So here... He's, not, he's looking not to get maybe what's going on, what makes sense of it, if we do want to make sense of it, is that he is hinting that he wants to borrow money, but he's not saying, will you lend me money, which would then yield possibly an out-and-out out rejection. He's beginning what's a delicate negotiation. So that might not be that, that big a puzzle. It might be, but I think that that would be... A, a possible solution. Then in comes the old man who's coughing up blood and who has almost nothing to pawn. And this is after a discussion that we've already gone through about how pawning, how much money pawn makes. He actually also asks another really interesting question, the guy who, who has come in to the shop at the start, 
which is, he says, why doesn't everyone lend money, given what an easy way it is to make money is lending money, because you get an object that you can sell. The person, the money that you give the person, you take a service fee from before you even give it to them. So if you pawn something to me for $100, and if I give you $100, which you have to pay back with interest, not only do I give you that $100, but I take a service fee of $10 right off the top. So you're paying interest in $100, but the first $10 of that $100 you've already spent just in order to borrow the money. So it's a real sweet deal to be a money lender in 1929 in Kyoto. It's a really sweet deal. So the guy who goes into the shop says, why isn't everyone a money lender since it's such an easy way to make money? What's the answer to that? Yeah. If everyone was a money lender, there would be no point to it. Yeah, because if everyone had money to lend, then no one would need to borrow money. You need as much, you need as much demand as supply for money lending to work. If everyone were lending money, then no one would be borrowing money because they'd all have money to lend. And yet, what happens at the end of the story? When the rich man comes in. Well, he has money and he's not lending it. Well, in a way he isn't, but in another way he is, which is he's lending it to the pawnbroker. That is, he has money which he is giving to someone else and which he expects back eventually. However, he's paying to lend rather than being paid the way standard money lending works. So what he's doing is he is giving the pawnbroker the money and getting some money on the security of the money that he's just given. But of course, he's getting less than what he's just given because that's what pawnbrokers do. They only give you some value of what you're pawning so that they're not going to be out. Plus, you pay. Plus, he's got to pay interest. Plus, he's again paying the origination fee. So it's like when you pay a credit card fee. Um, that's also what the pawnbroker is charging. So there is a way in which he has money to lend, and even a spooky way that he's lending at um, negative interest to the pawnbroker. They're not calling it lending, but the transaction in given the context of the first person saying, why isn't everyone a money lender? It feels like those things have to be connected. Then what does the first person do for the poor man out in the snow or who's just come in from the snow? What does the poor man want for the filthy rags that he's trying to pawn? the tubercular rags that he's trying to pawn, what's he hoping to get from that? Like a really small amount of money, right? Yeah, a really small amount of money. Yeah, yeah. And what does the person who comes in at the start then do? He gives it to him. So he needs money, and yet here is this really poor man, so he gives the poor man that money. And what is it then? What is the result of that, or is it a result? Then, so the, so the sequence of events is discussion about money lending. Poor man comes in, fails to pawn the rags that he has, partly because his house can't be investigated. Poor man says, I've avoided doing this until now, but now we have no choice. And he's walked through the snow in his clogs, and his wife is dying. So he tries to pawn that, but the boy at the counter refuses to do it. Then the person who is looking to borrow a substantially higher sum of money gives the poor man the money he needs. So here's someone who wants money. And yet, what he does is he gives the poor man a lot less money than what he's looking f than what he, the man who wants money, is looking for. But still, instead of coming out of that moment with more money than he had, he comes out with less money than he had. Then the rich man comes in and pawns his money. 
and explains what he's doing as if people, well, what's his explanation for why he's pawning his money? Anyone remember? Anyone else remember? Yeah, so if he's always going to the pawn shop, it's clear he's not rich, or it seems that he's not rich, because only people who are desperate go to the pawn shop. So, but does he have to pawn money for that to work? Why would pawning money, why doesn't he just come in and bring his own rags to the pawn shop, which would be more convincing? Why doesn't he bring in some, you know, cart something in, of not very great value, but or even of reasonable value, the family china. Why doesn't he cart that in, which would look like he was selling stuff off for cash? Why is he bringing cash in? Yeah. Is he trying to use it as like a bank? Because he knows that if he keeps the cash at home, then it'll, it might get stolen or lost or something like that. It, that would make sense, but he doesn't say that. So that would make sense, and yet it's not something that he says. So it's almost... Here, that's where I think the story gets spooky, is that if you reverse engineer it, which it's always worth doing with literature, you might think that the idea for the story that Kawabata had is, what if someone pawned money? That is, what if you had this strange short circuit where someone actually pawned money? People pawn gold all the time, right? What pawn shops specifically specialize in, if you go down to Moody Street, they're looking for gold and silver. They're looking for jewelry. They're looking for things that are both ornamental, that is, have use value as a ring like this, and have exchange value because they can be melted down into gold. So that's what they're looking for. So Kawabata, you might, I don't know that he did this, but it makes sense to think that what he did was to say, what if instead of gold, it was actually money itself? Yeah. At first I thought, could he be laundering money? Yeah, it, or he could be laundering money. That's something that people do, is to, in order to launder money, one way that... Um, well, do you know examples of how people launder money? Uh, well, basically, you just obtain money legally, and then you put it into a business or something, and what you get back is clean money. Yeah, and one way of doing it, which, it, which if you need to launder money quickly... And laundering money costs money. That's part of the point, is that laundering money costs money. So here's a pro tip if you ever need it. If you need to launder money quickly, go to a casino and buy some chips and lose some money and then cash in the chips that you've just bought. And the money that you cash in, or you go to the racetrack is the standard way it's done in 30s and 40s movies. Go to the racetrack and bet, and at racetracks, do you know what the what the payoff is at racetracks? Roughly how much the house gets? At casinos, the house gets about 1% of the amount that's bet. That's how much, that's the difference between what the players put in and what they get back is about 1%. They get back about, on average, 99% of their money, which is to say that some get tons and tons of money and most people lose a decent amount of money. But at the racetrack, I think it's by law, at least in New York State, I believe that it's 80% has to be returned. So that that's how they set the odds at, racetra at racetracks. Do people know about this? Do you spend your time thinking about gambling and looking at, no? The way it works, if you, if you go to the races, if you watch Kentucky Derby or something, what you'll often see is if there are horses that are very, very closely matched, the odds on both of them will be the same, which is six to five, which is to say that you may get $5 back for a bet of six, or when there's even money, even money at a racetrack. I'm going to simplify now. If there are two competitors, this will often happen with boxing, if there are two competitors, if there's a boxing match and there's a bookie in London, which is legal, taking bets on the boxing match, so one will one person will win and one will lose, then in both cases, six pounds, if you bet on the right boxer, if you bet six pounds, you will get five pounds back. So if it's an even money chance, 
it's not actually even money, but if there's a 50-50 chance that if they're evenly matched, so the chances of winning are 50-50 for each of them, then the amount that you get back will be 83% of what you've bet. So if I bet on boxer A and you bet on boxer B and I win, I, you will lose $6 and I will get $5. Whereas if you win, I will lose $6 and you will get $5. So if you bet on both sides of, an e, of a 50-50 chance, you will lose money. And so a way to launder money, but if you bet both sides of a 50-50 chance, what you will get back, 83% of what you bet, for sure, because one or the other will win. So you'll definitely get back 83% of what you bet. So if you do that, if you want to launder $100,000, you bet $50,000 on one and $50,000 on the other, and you get back $83,000 no matter who wins, and you've laundered the money. So that is, so it could be that that's what he's doing, that he pawns the money and then he gets money back from the pawn shop. And it wouldn't be the money that he actually pawned because the money that he's actually pawned is going to whom? The pawnbroker. Well, the pawnbroker and the pawnbroker is going to use it. How do we know the pawnbroker will use it for other purposes and will pay him back when he comes back to redeem his money with other physical money from the money that he's given him. How do we know that? How do we know that the physical money won't be the same? Because they use that money to lend it to other people. They use it to lend it to the first guy. So the first guy actually gets the money that the rich man has brought in, or at least gets half that money that the rich man has brought in, which he then takes outside to his wife who's waiting in the snow and who smiles at him. So, you, so another rule of money is that unlike lending lawnmowers or objects, you don't get back the same thing that you've given. You don't get back something that is physically the same. It's metaphysically the same because money is money. And money is infinitely substitutable for itself, but it's not physically the same. You wouldn't get this, that's, and that's why it's laundered because you're not, you're not getting physically the same cash back. The money you may give the pawnbroker might have traces of cocaine on it. The money you get back presumably won't have traces of cocaine. Or if it does, it'll be other people's cocaine, depending on where you're doing it. So that is part of what's interesting about it. But here, again, it's as though Kawabata took this financial fact and made it into something spooky, made it into the pawning of money itself, where generally when you pawn things, you pawn that thing. This is my guitar. I want my guitar back. What do you mean you sold my guitar by accident? And there's another guitar which is just as good. It's not my guitar. So that's one possibility, is that it can happen, but it's not a good thing when it does happen for you not to get the object that you want back. It may have sentimental value. If it's jewelry, for example, what do you mean you sold my wedding ring by accident, but it's OK because you have Jennifer's wedding ring, and I can take that instead? No, it's not OK. What play is about that question? Whether it has to be the same ring. Sorry? The ending of The Merchant of Venice. The ending of The Merchant of Venice. Is, is about the same thing, that the ring is valuable as a ring. Do you guys remember another ring in The Merchant of Venice? There are three rings. There, it's a three-ring circus. Uh-huh. Here, laugh. Let's try that again. It's a three-ring circus. <laughs> Thank you. What's the third ring? Who, what are the rings? Easy ones, first ring, yeah. Okay, second ring. Good. And then there's a joke about Narissa's ring at the end, which you may not have gotten if you don't know British English. Do you know what the joke is at the end, the very last line of the play? Gradiano says, while I live, I'll fear no other thing so sore as keeping safe Narissa's ring. No, she's not a virgin. 
Why would why would it be her virginity? I feel like that's kind of a go-to answer. Oh, that's a go-to answer. Okay, right. Um, yes, sometimes a cigar represents virginity, says Freud. Yeah. No, no, gutter is right. Virginity is not the is not what to find in that gutter, though. So, what did you find, Prue? I don't want to explain. <laughs> Okay. Um, Buchan says Fanny, but the reason he says Fanny is not that he has evidence that Gradiano and Nerissa are engaged in anal sex. It's because Fanny doesn't mean ass in British English. It means vagina. See, that's... Yeah. <laughs> that's why you can't say Fanny Packard. In England. Yeah. Is that true? You can't? That makes because sense. It's, yeah. It makes sense, but people will. <clears throat> yeah. Okay, yeah. So, so Fanny is, as an Americanism, it means ass. In um, England, it means vagina. This, when John McEnroe was commentating on Wimbledon, he kept saying people falling on their Oh, did he really? Oh, it was like Wimbledon? Yeah, Wimbledon. <laughs> you talk about people falling on their fannies? Um, Eve Sedgwick's book, which I mentioned before, uh, she has she has a book in which she mistakenly believes that Fanny means ass, and she bases a whole lot of her reading of English literature on that mistake, and it is um, an interesting one. But essentially, what it means is that she is finding anal eroticism in a whole lot of places where it's not anal. It's definitely eroticism. It's just not anal. So Nerissa's ring is her vagina. And what Gradiano says is he's going to make sure, because what are, what are the jokes that Nerissa and Portia make when, the, when their husbands come back? Do you remember? They're certain. They're absolutely certain of various things. And they are willing to bet their lives. I'll die for it, says Portia. But some woman had that ring. So is she right or wrong? I mean, a woman has the ring. Yeah, no, not, this is not an obscene part. Oh, I'm just trying to think. It's basically, you say that you gave these rings away to young men. Bullshit. You gave them away to women. That's what Portia and Nerissa are telling Bassanio and, and Graziano. Are they right or wrong? They're right. And they also say, well, whoever you gave that ring um, with is going to be, lie in my bed tonight. True or false? True. So the jokes that they're making are like the funny version of the careful parsing that Portia has done in court. So the way Portia defeats Shylock is by doing a careful legalistic reading of the bond. And the way Portia also defeats Bassanio is by making assertions that he wrongly denies. So he says, I didn't give it to a woman, and she says, yes, you did. I'm absolutely certain that you did. And to prove it, I'm, I'm going to, and if you gave it, whoever you gave it to is going to be in my bed tonight. So both of those are, the second one is funny, but it's a funny version of the first one, which is, that there are undreamt of meanings in the, in the formulation, in the verbal formulations that are being used. Shylock didn't realize, as perhaps Antonio at first did not realize, that the pound of flesh meant death. Shylock doesn't realize that if the pound of flesh means death, he does certainly realize that. He doesn't realize that if the pound of flesh means death, then he would be liable for murder. Do you remember, I want to get back to what the third ring is besides Nerissa's physical ring, or besides the obscene joke in the last line of the play. But do you remember 
what the punishment, why Shylock can be executed according to Portia, even though he's given up his demand for the pound of flesh. Do you remember, Ian? Is yeah, that something to do with the fact that he's Jewish? Yeah, it has something to do with the fact that he's Jewish, which is always enough of an excuse. Is it because he tried to target Antonio's life? Well, he tried to target Antonio's life, but it matters that he's Jewish when he tried to target Antonio's life, that it's not simply that what he's doing is targeting Antonio's life. That's clear. But if it had been a Christian person who'd done it and then said, okay, I give up, I give it up, um, I won't demand the bond, uh, just give me the 18,000 ducats you offered, okay, just give me the 3,000 ducats you offered even without interest, okay, I'll take nothing, and Portia says, stay, the law has yet another hold on you. And why does the law have another hold on him that it wouldn't have on a Christian, well, to ask questions to answer it, that it wouldn't have a, on a Christian in the same circumstances. Why does being Jewish make him liable to the law in a way that being Christian would not? Because he's an outsider? Because he's an outsider, yeah. So if you look at Deuteronomy, so if you guys did the biblical reading uh, from, from those five or six biblical verses that were assigned... This is what it says in Deuteronomy. Thou shalt not give to usury to thy brother as usury of money, usury of meat, usury of anything that is put to usury. So you won't give through usury to your brother either of money or of use value, of meat. That is, of, uh, in another place, the word is vittles. The idea being that if you feed someone, you don't demand that they give you back more than you gave them. If you borrow a cup of sugar from your neighbor, which people used to do all the time in 60s commercials, you don't expect your neighbor to give you nine ounces of sugar back as interest for the sugar that you lent them. So you, do, you don't do that, but then Deuteronomy goes on. Unto a stranger thou mayest lend upon usury, but thou shalt not lend upon usury unto thy brother, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all that thou settest thine hand to in the land whither thou goest to possess it. So you can lend at interest, if that's what usury means, this is what we were discussing a little bit last week, you can lend at interest to a stranger, but not to your brother. So what effect does that seem to have had on what is in fact a fairly accurate background that Shakespeare is giving you of Venice in the 16th century, in the 15th and 16th century? What effect does that verse in Deuteronomy, which is a really important one, in Christian legal applications, in Christian, in, in kingdoms, in countries, in city-states like Venice, which thought of themselves as trying to remain consistent with the Christian law, Christian doctrine, Christian legal demands. What application do you think those two verses had? Yeah. So I mean, so Christians can't lend money between each other. So yeah. it's relegated to the Jews. Right. In order to do to take that role upon themselves. Right. So it's the Jews who are who then become the money lenders. And what does it mean about Jews in a Christian city? They're not brothers of the Christians. They're strangers. So strange you can lend money at usurious interest to strangers. And if you're a commercial city-state like Venice where borrowing money is essential to any commercial enterprise, then you need someone, you need a class of people who can lend the money, and that class of people can't be Christians because Christians aren't allowed to lend to Christians. So they have to be 
non-Christians, but not only that, they can't be citizens of Venice. They have to be strangers. So in the city, you have to have a class of people who are part of the city and yet are strangers. A couple of you might recognize this from an essay that we read last semester. Joseph? In the film class, it's okay. The class is over. You can forget everything that we did in it. Um, Ian? Uh, the symbol's the stranger, right? Yeah. So, so Zimmel, who, who's the person we talked about in this class, who says that, the ex, that exchange is a relationship when each, in which each gets more than they give. Simmel has an amazing essay called The Stranger in which he talks about the stranger as a feature of, moder of the modern world. And by the modern world, he means the world as capitalism and as commercial, the commercial world which is being established in the Renaissance, in 14th and 15th and 16th century Italy and then in England and then in various other places. So the idea of the stranger, the way Zimmel is talking about it, is it's an experience that we have all the time, that it's a city, the city is full of strangers, that cities in a way are defined as places where those who run into each other or those who interact with each other are strangers. But Zimmel's idea of the stranger as a sociological idea, Zimmel is one of the big four founders of sociology. If you take any sociology classes, it's because of Zimmel. The first, the translation of the first great anthology of Zimmel, which we read The Stranger from, it was done by a Brandeis professor. So Zimmel is, defines the stranger as opposed to the wanderer. The wanderer is the merchant for Zimmel. The wanderer is the person who comes and sells his wares and goes. So the wanderer is sometimes, sometimes called a peddler, someone who goes from town to town with objects of use value, which he sells to people in those towns and gets money for it, and that's how he makes a living. And then he goes and buys more objects of use value with that money. That's the wanderer. So the wanderer, says Zimmel, is, do you remember the formulation, either of you guys? It's the wanderer is here today and gone tomorrow. Yeah. The stranger is here today and stays tomorrow. Yeah, so the wanderer is the one who, who is here today and goes tomorrow. The stranger is the one who is here today and stays tomorrow. But he's not any less of a stranger even though he stays. So the city is the place of the stranger, and that idea of the stranger means that what cities, what commercial cities are, are places which are not quite communities because they are filled with people who live in the same place and yet are strangers to each other. And that's established here the reason Zimmel is picking the word stranger is that the word in Deuteronomy, I mean, the word stranger is all over the Bible, and it's where the laws of hospitality come from and so on. But in Deuteronomy, the idea of the stranger is someone who is not part of the community of mutual help. And therefore, you can lend at usury to a stranger because you can make money off a stranger, and therefore, the strange or the weird thing that Venice is doing is saying that we have to be strangers to the Jews, but it's our, it's our city. So it's our fucking city. So what that means is that the Jews have to be strangers here. In order to borrow money from them, it has to be legal for them to lend money to us but it's only legal for them to lend money to us if they are not us, if they are strangers to us. Even if they live here, even if they've lived here for generations, they are strangers. And therefore, says Portia, when a stranger attempts to take the life of a Venetian the way you did, 
with this pound of flesh, the stranger's life is forfeit. That's what Portia is saying. And that explains the weirdness of the relationship in the city, not of the relationship of are they friends or not. Well, maybe of their friends or not, but the weirdness of the fact that Jews are separate, that they live in a ghetto, that there's a, that there's a Venetian ghetto for Jews, as later there will be a Polish ghetto for Jews, that they are within but separate and therefore can lend money to the Christians. Okay, see if you can figure out what that third ring is for Wednesday. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then they would really be frowned you yeah. lose all the social status. Yeah. And so the, the minority, and it was even beneath the dignity of the Stumble Greeks uh -huh. as well, which is the so they also, I said, they, they also had a special uh, minister of status in the empire. But uh, uh, so Armenians uh, would be the, uh, the big commercial uh, things. And if you at all got involved in it, you lost all you know, social status. Wow. Right. It meant that you're never going to be a prince of, you know, so you're not going to be involved in any pasha type like that. Yeah. Big and you did it for your entire family until the seventh generation. Wow. Wow. So I don't know what the Islamic. Although the what's what's interesting is that the is the passage in Ezekiel about how you can overcome the curse. Um, the, the, the curse of, of third and fourth generation if you're generous to others rather than lending in us with usury. Yes. Well, I think, you know, sort of in some cases, I mean, of course, let, let's, you know, so the Armenian community and the Jewish community, they, they also had some prince that they called the princely position because they were supposed to be self-governing communities. <coughs> but uh -huh. um, even those people, they're actually like usually the head the chief rabbi would be the, uh, the head of the community. Yeah. So someone, uh, so someone else in a princely position was usually either a law person or a you know, religious person. Was, uh, usually the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Fascinating. So I don't know why it's just... It's, like it's very... It's a huge thing in Turkish history, but that's not what's <laughs> Well, obviously. <laughs> That's fascinating. That's great. Thank you. Hi. Okay. Okay. All right. Everything as per usual, like so. Yeah. I mean, we're we're still behind, but less behind. So just yeah, keep up. I think we'll we'll keep up. Um, have you read the most the the gift? Okay, so definitely read that. Yeah, I'll I'll send an email telling people they definitely should read that. All right. <laughs>